Yeah. Kia let's get this web conference underway. We'll get started with the karakia. Una hea tūneta, tātai ki runga, tātai ki raro, tātai ahurau, amie, huie, tai. Hello everyone, haere mai and welcome to the Natural Hazards Field Trip. I'm Shelley, the Learns Field Trip teacher. And we're in Matata, just trying to find enough coverage to talk to you because we started at Rumoko Morai, where there was plenty of coverage, but then we had a person driving fence posts into the ground, so banging away, so we wouldn't have had very good audio for you, so we've had to shift. So, beautiful day here, and I'd like to welcome our experts for uh, part of the field trip. So we've got Sylvia. Ben and Graham, Got it. and I'll let you guys introduce yourself. Sylvia, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Come on. Kia ora. Uh, my name is Sylvia Papuke. Uh, he uri no uh, Ngāti Hapepatu Hewhe. Um, and I look at uh, Mātauranga Māori and Western science and how they can work together. Kia ora, Sylvia. Ben. Kia ora, I am Ben Kennedy from the University of Canterbury. Um, I am very lucky, I spend my life learning about mm. volcanoes and, and teaching about volcanoes and I absolutely love super volcanoes, so really excited to be here. And you may remember Ben, if you joined us in Iceland last year, he took us on a fantastic field trip finding out more about the similarities between Iceland in Aotearoa, so check out that field trip if you haven't had a look at it. And we've got Graham, who you may remember from What's the Plan, Stan? Kia ora. So I'm Graham Leonard. I, uh, I work at GNS Science. I, I make maps. So I make volcano maps and tsunami maps, and I work on, on warnings. So I'm part of GNS volcano monitoring team. And uh, like Ben, I've got a passion for super volcanoes, and I've spent a lot of, a lot of my life working up this way, matata, right through the topo. So kia ora. And you'll find out more about um, the super volcano as we move south on this journey that we're beginning today. So beautiful day. Our ambassadors are hanging out in the sun, enjoying it. We've got Hippy from Waipipi. Looking very excited. He's found some nice green grass here. And we've got Kevin, the feel. And he's from Sacred Heart School. We've got Maya, the cheeky loons ambassador. Always got something to say and always trying to steal stuff. Got to watch this one. And Totara Totara. So they've all got a lot to say for themselves this morning and you can find out more about what they get up to on the field trip by checking out their web pages. So this field trip, natural hazards, particularly the Topor supervolcano. So this field trip is supported by EQC. So finding out more about for natural hazards such as volcanoes, earthquakes, and tsunami, landslides, all sorts of things. So you can find out more about that by checking out the website for this field trip and indeed other field trips that we've done on geohazards as well. Okay, without further ado, we'll get underway with questions. A big welcome to everybody listening in today. Great to 
see so many people on the Zoom meeting room. Uh, and we'll get started with your first question. Question number one, please. Hi, I'm Wyatt. And Kia ora, Wyatt. First question is how are supervolcanoes formed? Hi Wyatt, that is, that's a great question and a question that we still don't know the answer to but we're working on it. Um, I think the most important ingredient to get a super volcano, a truly super volcano, is you've got to have a super amount of magma under the ground. So you've got to accumulate so much magma that when eventually the cork pops on that volcano, all of this magma is ready to come out in one big boom. And the other really important thing you need with these super volcanoes is you need to squeeze that magma out. So usually when a super volcano forms, the land subsides and acts as a giant piston, squeezing out all of this magma to make this huge, enormous super eruption but luckily they don't happen very often and we're going to find out more about that probably even in this web conference. And that brings us to question two, please. My name is Kipyo. Oh, I can't quite hear you there. What causes a super volcano to erupt? Can you hear us still? What causes a super, super volcano, volcano to erupt? Um, there are lots of things that can cause the super volcano to erupt. You need that large amount of magma there ready to go, but you also need to give that magma a nudge. Um, and Graham, maybe you want to you you're an expert in how triggering how you can trigger yeah. these eruptions. Okay, so I mean we're not we're not sure what triggers each individual eruption, but you need something to cause, there's like, a, there's like a pancake of magma built up under the ground under a lot of these volcanoes, and something needs to nudge it to make it wanna rise up and reach the Earth's surface. And the two big ones are some extra heat or gas or something extra from underneath, so that the magma's coming from deep down and you can, get, you can get new magma in from the bottom that's hot or it's got extra gas, and suddenly your pancake is, is overpressured and it hasn't got anywhere to go and it's going to erupt. Or it might be very close to that already and some little external force might do it. So a big earthquake, if, you, if you're really overpressured and thinking it can't stay there as a little pancake under the ground and you get a big local earthquake, sometimes we can see um, ground shaking might, might trigger an, an eruption. The most important thing though is to understand, uh, even though we call it a super volcano, uh, we don't I think there's a supersize pancake or like whoopee cushion under the ground. So we know there could be eruptions here in the future and you could get those tipping points, but we think it would take generations, you know, one, two, even three lifetimes to build up enough magma to have a, a truly super eruption. So even though it's a super volcano, we don't think it's primed right now for a super eruption. So hopefully that allays some of your fears. And, and thinking about that, because they, they don't happen often, they don't have enough magma often. So when was the last,
super eruption. Any uh, ideas? The last super eruption that went <laughs> 25 and a half thousand years ago is the Orunui eruption. And it, it was to the piston that went down and left the depression that's filled in with Lake Taupo now. So 25 and a half thousand years ago, the formation of Lake Taupo was the last super eruption on the planet. And the, obviously the last one here. It's a very, very long time ago. Okay, we're now, oh, so we here, you had something to add, didn't you? Um, so we also have a Māori worldview about the way that super volcanoes have formed. Uh, last night we spent the night with a historian, and he told us about uh, so eruptions, we would code them as relationships. And so some volcanoes get on better with others, and some volcanoes don't like each other, and they battle, and they fight. And so the supervolcano story we heard last night was a big battle, and all the mountains went everywhere. So that's our Māori worldview on that. Yeah, and understanding those relationships between the volcanoes, what personalities they have and how they get on with each other can help to prepare for what they might throw at us. It's like being aware of your, your nasty little brother or sister when they're in an angry <laughs> mood. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, question number four now, please. Hi, my name is Aiden. Hi, Aiden. Sorry, we didn't quite catch that. Can you repeat your question? Big voice. Is it question three? How do scientists know that Taupo, Taupo started erupting around 300,000 years ago? Aidan, is that correct? Just give me a thumbs up. Thumbs down. <laughs> Are we oh. nice, nice and close to the laptop. Big loud voice. I'll repeat it for him. He said, how do tectonic plates move? Okay. Good stuff. Okay, so we've got that down as question nine. So sorry, we're getting a little bit confused, but great to have that question. And Ben's going to answer that. <laughs> So, tectonic plates, again, we still don't know for sure, um, you know, how tectonic plates move. And there's, there's basically an, two ideas. There's one that tectonic plates are kind of being pulled. So, some the Earth's crust is quite dense, and it, sometimes it wants to sink, and it wants to sink underneath plates, and that can actually pull the, um, the tectonic plate down underneath one other tectonic plate. And then the other idea is that there is magma rising and there are these big currents underneath, um, underneath our plates and they're rising up just like you're kind of cooking your pasta at home. There are things bubbling up and those currents are pushing the tectonic plates apart. So there's this idea of both pulling and pushing and these currents and convection that keeps, keeps the earth active and the plates moving. Excellent. Thanks, Ben. And next question, please. My name is 
How does polyplastic flow stop? Thank you. How do pyroclastic flow stop? <laughs> Thanks, Ben. That's a great question. Uh, so pyroclastic flow. So there, there was there was some prep material, right, to explain a pyroclastic <laughs> flow. Yeah. Okay. So hot hot clouds of ash and pumice. They're classics out of super volcanoes. In fact, the, the mountainside behind us is made from the pyroclastic flows from the uh, massive caldera eruption up near Mount Tarawera 320,000 years ago. And these flows can go tens or hundreds of kilometers across the landscape. And there's two main theories on, on how they build up the, the rock or they build up the layer of pumice uh, that's left behind and how they stop. It's all, it's all kind of melded in together. One is that they're kind of like rivers. And so the chunks of pumice and the ash are falling out of it and forming layers, just like the sand and gravel at the bottom of a river. And uh, you see layers in, in the landscape behind me, which, which kind of point to that. Another one is that they're more like debris flow, uh, like just big flows of dense pumice and ash that are hugging the ground and um, like a bulldozer almost cruising across the landscape. And then all of a sudden they don't have enough energy anymore and it kind of just freezes in place. Now the reality is probably somewhere in between and it depends on how much hot gas and, and ash there is compared to, um, compared to kind of dense rock. So if it's really dense, it's probably more like a bulldozer and it all stops at once. If it's really fluid, it's more like a river and it probably builds up as layers and just slowly filters out and stops gently. Uh, anyone, anyone pyroclastic flow might be one or the other or a mix of both. A really important thing is that a big pyroclastic flow <laughs> will go a long way and a small pyroclastic flow will go a short way. Yeah. And not all volcanoes produce pyroclastic flows. No, we're well not the, not of this scale anyway. So the, these massive caldera eruptions can produce pyroclastic flows that go 10 or even 100 kilometers. But uh, little tiny volcanoes like the ones in Auckland, uh, they might produce little tiny pyroclastic flows that you know, just go a few hundred meters or a couple of kilometers. Excellent. And next question, please. You guys are going to have to almost shout because you're a long way from the microphone where you're sitting. Okay, I picked up a little bit of that. I think it's um, how can the Taupo supervolcano help us to understand volcanoes better? Is that correct? Got it. All right, thanks, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> the cool thing about the central Taupo volcanic zone, this Taupo supervolcano, is it's the most active volcano on the planet. So the magma's shallow. It's in spots all through this area, all the way through to Topo. It's as little as four or five kilometers under the ground. And it's moving around every now and then. So we get swarms of earthquakes. We've got lots of hot springs, geysers, mud pools uh, coming up from uh, water coming out of that magma, gas coming out of that magma. So what, it, what that means is we can listen really closely to what's going on inside the body of the volcano. It's, it's close to the surface. It's really active. So we can test out all our techniques. I mean, if you want to think like um like a, a patient in a in a hospital we can we can take our stethoscopes and our blood pressure meter it's a really active patient that we're really close to so we can listen really well we can test out new bits of equipment and we can actually we can learn things about how to monitor the magma monitor the chemistry coming up through the water from the magma that we can apply in 
Ruapehu, Auckland, Whakari, because it's so active and there's so much heat and so much kind of fluid and gas coming out of it right here. So it's a great laboratory, I guess, to learn about volcano monitoring all over the world. Um, and for the iwi that live through the super volcanoes, we get to learn about the values of, uh, we have three core values. We have whanaungatanga, which means building relationships with the volcanoes, because as we see the volcanoes as our relations, so we don't see them as a separate thing. So I am the mountain and the mountain is me. Uh, we also talk about whanaungatana, which, is, which means that we develop those relationships with in anything that, everything that Graham's been talking about. So we have guides on Rotorua that, um, you know, they run tourist businesses um, and, show, and show the people around the world uh, different places. And we also uh, have kaitiakitana as well. And uh, kaitiakitana is making sure that we're safe we look after ourselves, but also that we also look after our mountains. And another question, please. Is that how do humans live with super volcanoes? Good stuff, thank you. Um, I can start that answer, but I think Sylvia will be able to add a lot of very, um, super volcanoes are a lot of, um, on top of this, this, this super volcano and it's providing an incredibly rich, um, and fertile landscape for farming. It's creating um, a wonderful location just for experiencing the natural beauty of the planet. Um, it's providing energy for geothermal power. Um, so I think it's it's um, it's a wonderful thing for humans to live with um, to live with the super volcano. And I think. GNS science and uh, and our understanding and our work with Māori, we're learning more about um, the hazard of the supervolcano um, by every day and understanding that maybe it isn't such a hazard and it's part of our life and it's part of the way that we, um, we experience it. Um. So for uh, iwi living through the super volcanoes, there's over 60 hapu, and there might be more that I, uh, we haven't done an actual count, but we will do so. Um, so we've got five broad ways of how we live with the volcano. So we tell stories. It's in our stories, and you'll hear one very soon from Pototo. We uh, sing songs. We perform, we've got traditional performing arts, we have carvings, we have, uh, we, um, we've got weaving, we also have our natural sciences and we have our hunters and our um, beasts who tell the stories of how they live with the super volcanoes. Um, we also have 
we also look, it's all connected. So the biggest one for us is that our supervolcanoes are not only connected to humans, but they're connected to the stars, they're connected to the trees, they're related to the sea. So um, we do everything we can um, to live with the supervolcanoes. And, and that's pretty much volcanoes in general, not just supervolcanoes, because as we heard before, supervolcanoes defined by that massive eruption that only happens very rarely. So a supervolcano is the whole Taupo volcanic centre. So it's got lots of volcanoes within that centre. Okay, next question please. Kia ora, Tyson, good question. That's Ben. Ben's had a go at this <laughs> in Iceland. <laughs> uh, not true, not true. Um, super volcanoes live on a time frame that is well beyond what we as humans um, can almost fathom. And an energy scale way beyond ours as well. So the supervolcano does what the supervolcano wants. Um, <laughs> we are pretty much ants crawling around on its back. Um, so I think it's almost impossible for humans to start a supervolcano unless that supervolcano already wanted to erupt. Supervolcano already wanted to erupt, all that magma was already in place. You wouldn't be doing what you were trying to do in Iceland, which was drill into that magma, would you? No, it definitely wouldn't be a good idea to drill into a supervolcano that we knew was ready to erupt. And we, yeah, we would never do that. <laughs> And that's why this scientific work is so important because it does tell us a bit more about what is happening below our feet so that we can manage the risks a little better and not try to harness geothermal power from um, an area that is really volatile and ready to erupt at any moment that could end quite badly. Okay, I think that's the end of Alfriston School's questions. Is that correct? Yep. Well, good stuff. Um, a big round of applause for such great questions from Alfredston School. And of course, a big round of applause for our very capable expert. <laughs> and we are now going to open up to any questions from our listening schools. Um, so there is a chat pop down the bottom. If you scroll down to the bottom of your screen, you'll see it's an orange on my screen, a little chat bubble. If you click on that, it'll bring up the chat window and you can type questions in there. And I do apologize, it's getting a little bit breezy down at the coast here now, so hopefully the wind isn't interfering with our sound quality too much. Um, but feel free to type questions in there, and Barry in the Loon's office is going to give us a selection of those. Oh, <coughs> yeah. One thing, students, you only need to put your question in there once. I can scroll up and down and find them. But the one I was going to ask was what causes magma to rise to the surface from Indera? And maybe uh, something to do the scientific explanation of something to do with heat or gases or something like that. You guys?
Did you hear all that okay? Thumbs up? Imagine a balloon. Yep, so yep. It's, it's light, so it wants to rise. And if it's runny enough, so if it's, um, you know, like syrup, really liquidy, um, then it will rise, it will find its way through cracks and it will rise to the surface. And bubbles will make it more buoyant and more want to rise. Excellent. Is that coming through loud and clear, Barry? Uh, yes, it was a bit of a delay at the start, but then it was okay. So um, another one from Ferguson Intermediate School, Room 16. Is there a chance that another eruption can happen in Taupo? Yeah, okay. Yeah, definitely. So There have been there there have been eruption. There've been about thirty eruptions in the last thirty thousand years down around, and a similar number of eruptions, a few less in the same time, up in the Tarawera area. Those at the moment, but they've all, except for uh, for two of them, they've all almost all been uh, much smaller. Not super eruptions, but they've been uh, quite manageable eruptions. If, um, if you want to kind of see what one of these typical eruptions looks like, there was one in 2009 in Chile called Chaiten, C-H-A-I-T-E-N. And you could Google that and you could see what one of these typical eruptions looks like. And we've been studying that as part of our Eclipse research program. Uh, they only happen even around the world every 50 or 100 years. So in a way, we're kind of lucky this has happened. We know a bit about what it might look like and it's manageable. The people nearby, um, you know, can get on with their lives. So it, we, we can expect to see another one of those. It's not, it's not that likely in our lifetime here, uh, but it could happen. The one thing that you're, you're likely to see is a bit of unrest. And we, um, we're talking about the magma moving around under the ground, creating a bunch of earthquakes, maybe the ground deforming a bit and bulging or a change in the hot springs, new geysers, that kind of thing. And that's really, that's typical. That's just kind of the magma waking up, rolling over a little bit, but then it almost always goes back to sleep. So the, you're gonna see unrest, you're gonna see earthquakes and, and, and changes here. You probably won't see an eruption, uh, but you could, it definitely will erupt again. It's just... And it, it must be really tricky to know uh, the difference between just unrest and building up to an eruption. Yeah, it is. Ben just look, looked at me for that one again. That, that, that's a really challenging question, and that's why we're putting we're putting so much work into understanding this. Uh, we know there's magma down there, and understanding what state it's in. Like ben was talking about how um, how hot it is, how much gas and pressure it's got in it is critical, and then we also need to be able to understand what we're we're getting through um, earthquakes and the chemistry coming out of the hot springs um, knowing what that tipping point to an eruption is is really hard it's, it's it's not that certain in the moment and we're plowing a lot of research into it I mean that's, that's what's got Ben and I involved in this whole project so the main thing we're looking for is 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 so if if we realize the hot springs are getting hotter or the earthquakes are getting stronger and there's more of them and the rate of change is increasing. So we get more and more earthquakes and they're getting bigger and bigger, faster and faster. That's the type of change that um, means we might change our forecast, you know, and say things are a little more likely to erupt. And we don't think that's happening at the moment. It's nice and quiet. Good to know. Okay, Barry. Yep. 
Uh, one from Corey from uh, Ferguson Intermediate School, Room 16. He's kind of got two in there, but um, I'll paraphrase it a bit. But what's the most active supervolcano in the world now? And when did it have last have a super eruption? I'm wondering if the answer is Topol. There you go, Barry. You don't need us anymore. You're spot on. <laughs> We've got a, a question here that Sylvia was asking. How is magma formed? So we're going to provide two versions. So the Māori version, um, and I'll talk in Māori and put the hanga o te tukarewa. Um, so what I've just said there is that Ruaimoko uh, lives in the womb of his mother and that uh, if you have a pregnant woman, she keeps the baby warm. So that's one short explanation. Yeah. And that's exactly um, the, the same as the scientific explanation. So I'm very lucky. I actually have a lab at the University of Canterbury where I can make my own magma. Um, I can make my own lava flows. And, and how I do it is I basically heat up some rocks and those rocks melt and they turn into lava or magma. And the one other ingredient that really helps to make magma is if you can dissolve some gas in as well, and that makes the magma much easier to melt and it makes it much more runny. It's just like cooking, really. I'll be your good cook, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I if you like burnt food. <laughs> Don't, don't let a volcanologist in the kitchen. More questions. Um, one from Tortra, one and three. How does Graham create his maps about volcanic activity? Uh, that's from Lucas. Right. Okay, kia ora, Lucas. Thanks for asking about maps. That's what I care about. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of legwork. So over the last 20 years, I've probably driven almost every road between here and uh, and Turangi and um, and uh, it's about visit climbing across farms, walking tramping tracks, kayaking on lakes. Sometimes we use helicopters just to go and look and um, use my little hand lens, look at the individual bits of rocks, take samples every now and then. Uh, we we um, we take the samples back and get fingerprints, like chemistry fingerprints, on them. So when I'm in the field, I've got a blank map or a draft map with me, and I'm drawing on that. And back in the office, I'm putting that into the computer and, and looking at a whole bunch of layers from satellite data and maps from people who worked before me, and the new data that I've got from the laboratory to try and match all these little points of rock up and work out what the bits of landscape I drew with a pencil actually mean.
And the last bit is I'm, I'm also trying to find out how old everything is. So time is a big part of it. The was erupted when the, um, when the sediments to my right here were laid down in the, um, in the area around Edgecombe so that I can work out relatively how everything fits together. So a big We've only got trip ahead of us, um, but we will be here at 9.15 again tomorrow morning to answer any more questions. Um, you can pop those in the chat window just like today after the formal web conference. Uh, one more question, Barry, please. Um, there's someone there that will be uh, easily done by Google, but I've got one myself. Several years ago, I went to the Papa exhibition on Pompeii, the eruption of Vesuvius, and it had a time lapse showing um, what happened. And then the pyroclastic flow came out, and it looked to me that it melted everything, like buildings. Um, so the Taupo, the last supervolcano eruption of Taupo, can you describe? what the pyroclastic flow from that would have been like compared to the Vesuvius one? I guess, <laughs> I, guess I wouldn't uh, like to have been there to, um, to experience it. Um, all we can say as geologists is see what is left. Um, and, and if you try and look at the deposit that was laid down from that pyroclastic flow, all that's left is burnt tree stumps. Um, and because the pyroclastic flow, like you said, would have just been much bigger, um, it probably would have been a similar temperature, so maybe, uh, you know, 600 degrees C, but hard enough to burn anything in its path. And I mean, I think Graham can correct me that there was a huge forest that is now still regrown in some areas. That's right. Later in this field trip, we're going to, on Thursday, we're going to be in Te Papa. And uh, I've been lucky enough in the last couple of years to help make the new animations for the new Te Papa exhibit. Uh, and one of those is, is, a, uh, is an animation of what we think it, the pyroclastic flows looked like during the Aruanui eruption, the one that formed Lake Togo. And we feel like those are really pretty accurate from what we know. Uh, there may well be in videos, little clips of that, today and or tomorrow going into it and they're definitely you'll be able to see it on Thursday when we're at Tepapa. So that video is my best foot forward on what those pyroclastic flows would look like. The cool thing there is that camera is at about 15 kilometers high, about 30 kilometers away and you'll see pretty quickly it gets engulfed by the, the ash and the pyroclastic flow. So it was pretty epic. Ooh, yes, yep. And interestingly, um, you'll see in the background pages that a huge super eruption that can actually throw so much at change. So uh, hopefully it doesn't happen We're not in, our see it again in our lives. We, no. It takes longer than a lifetime to build up enough magma. So don't exactly. don't worry too much. It's just something spectacular to know about. Yeah, and calling the, the field trip a super volcano field trip. Yes, we're looking at a super volcano, but it's not about to have a super eruption. So that's very good to know. On that note, thank you very much to everybody that has taken part this morning. It's been wonderful to talk to you from Matata this morning in the sunshine, getting a bit breezy. The, the sea breeze has come up and we're going to start heading south following the journey of Matarurangi. So make sure that you check out the videos 
that will be online for you tomorrow following that journey. And hopefully we'll see you again tomorrow. Ka kite ono. Bye everyone. You can all say a big goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.